it's Nick Austin filling in for Steven Henderson on this edition of the podcast. And one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot on Detroit today as a team is self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles, and where they fit into what we do here in the Motor City. In fact, a lot of attention is paid to what happens out west, even in San Francisco, where they have driverless taxis operating right now. But in Detroit recently, we learned that there's going to be a pilot program to help shuttle elderly and disabled folks around next year. Beginning next year, we could have those vehicles on the road. So what does that mean for us here in Detroit? Where exactly are we with the technology? And what could a future with self-driving cars look like? To help us unpack those ideas, we had Professor Missy Cummings of George Mason University, as well as economist Cliff Winston with Brookings, join us on Detroit Today. Professor Cummings, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you because one of the things I think about when I talk to people about self-driving cars, a lot of excitement, a lot of trepidation. However, a lot of us don't really even understand how this technology works in the first place. So how would you explain the current state of self-driving vehicles for a non-engineer? Well, I would say they're right about the stage where a... 15-year-old is. Indeed, I have a 15-year-old. So it's funny watching my daughter learn to drive and and looking at what's happening with self-driving cars is interesting. They're like like 15-year-olds because they kind of can grasp sort of the basics, but they miss the big picture. Mm. You know, that's really interesting way of talking about it, because I think one of the things that has a lot of people a little concerned, especially seeing videos online, is the way these autonomous vehicles interact with us on the road, human drivers who might not be as consistent in how they operate. So how do you explain to us or can you explain to us the challenges that these self-driving vehicles face when it comes to interacting with human drivers on the road? Well, after my time with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, I learned some really important lessons by looking at all the incidents and crashes that were happening with these vehicles, both in San Francisco and elsewhere in the country. And I think one problem that people forget or don't really want to admit is we keep saying that we're going to use these cars to bring down crashes because 94% of crashes are caused by humans, which is actually a misleading statistic. But somehow the self-driving industry forgets that there are errors made by coders now. And indeed, one of the problems that I saw were a lot of, I would actually characterize them as a professor of like, Uh, computer science 101 errors, right? Mm. Basic errors. And so there are a lot of errors in coding. And because the self-driving industry is so nascent and unregulated and they just haven't adopted the same safety practices, they don't have the same kind of code checking and software testing that you would find in more mature companies at like Amazon or certainly at something like an airline company like Boeing. Mm. You know, I think the thing that we've seen with this uh, rush to getting technology on the roads, and, you know, I'm a big fan of adopting technology, is the question of where is the line between Uh, testing, getting more data, making sure we can figure out how these systems work safely, but maybe rushing it out when it's too early versus never getting it out. Like if we have a zero tolerance tolerance policy, you know, we might never achieve that, uh, that place of safety. So my question for you then is hearing that, 
where is the balance between when and how much these items or these cars should get on the road versus uh, testing elsewhere? Are you advocating for a zero tolerance policy or, or what line would you have? No, I mean, I don't think zero tolerance is correct because, you know, no technology and, and neither are humans uh, 100% perfect. I certainly think that we should get the accident rates to human equivalent, which the data is quite clear. The one thing that Detroit should be looking at is the San Francisco data. The companies had to report all their miles plus all their accidents, and it's clear that they're crashing, and I do want to be clear on this, they're minor slow-speed crashes because that's the domain that they're in, but they're crashing four to eight times more often than humans. And so we have very clear evidence that they are not performing as well as humans. And that's not even taking into account all the, I think the the bigger problem, even bigger than the slow-speed crashes, are the vehicle retrieval events. This is when the cars just give up uh, because they recognize they're out of their domain and they just quit and they won't move. And eventually a human has to come and move them. And so while that seems like maybe it's just a congestion problem, it actually has serious safety ramifications because police are blocked, ambulances are blocked, firefighters are blocked. And so now we're into the second derivative effects uh, that are what do we do with these cars when they give up because they don't know what they're doing? And it turns out they're giving up quite a bit. You know, when you're talking about the data that you're referencing, is that specifically driverless cars like the taxis we're talking about in San Francisco? Or are you also including in that data the Teslas, for example, that are supposed to have someone no. behind the wheel? No, Teslas are not included okay. in that. So these are strictly uh, the self-driving, the Waymos, the Cruises, Teslas are not self-driving cars. In their current configuration, they will never be self-driving cars. So I actually take a pretty hard line that while Teslas may have some autonomous technology in them, they are not self-driving cars. Mm. Again, we're speaking right now with uh, Missy Cummings, the director of Mason's Autonomy and Robotics Center and professor, again, at George Mason University. She previously served as the senior safety advisor to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, as I'll probably refer to them over the course of the show. But we also want to hear from you and what questions you might have about this technology. I mean, have you ever ridden in a driverless vehicle? And what was your experience like? And would you like to ride in a driverless vehicle? Why or why not? And how do you feel about sharing the road with these kinds of vehicles? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. I do want to note that we got a tweet from Jake Neer, former producer here on Detroit Today, who says it's important to evaluate Tesla separately from other actors such as Cruz or Waymo in this conversation. Most experts I've heard from draw a big distinction that's right, Jake. One of the reasons uh, we wanted to make sure we, we had that distinction right now, we're talking about purely self-driving vehicles. But I had heard or I had wondered how the technology uh, kind of works in terms of uh, where we're at with that versus how humans operate, which is one of the reasons we're getting into this conversation right now. And speaking of that progress in technology, uh, I understand that you're someone, uh, Professor Cummings, who advocates for developing technologies. Uh, what 
advice would you give to lawmakers and to regulators in terms of overseeing the practice and the development of these technologies as it, as it exists right now? Well, I think that they need to develop more of a maybe what we would call a quid pro quo, like let these vehicles operate in limited capacities but gather data. So the vehicle retrieval event where the cars brick, stop, cause problems, uh, there needs to be more specific data gathering to find out the nature of these events um, and then what should the policies be. So, for example, if these vehicles have, have the high bricking rate that we think that they do, then perhaps they should not be allowed to operate in areas uh, in and around hospitals, firefighting, you know, police stations, and or, you know, try to find out the routes where the bricking uh, happens the least and kind of limit the routes to the areas where these events are not frequent. Unfortunately, this is causing such a big problem in San Francisco that the residents are up in arms. And and I, I'm not sure that Cruz and Waymo um, appreciate the, the PR battle they're in. They had a big battle over whether they should be able to extend their operations, and they won that vote. But I think at the expense of public favor, and now the San Francisco public is even, they definitely are against the technologies. And actually, nationally, people consistently and increasingly don't want to ride in self-driving cars. So I'm not really sure, you know, that the we've got to be careful. I'm pro-technology, but if we take this hard line and we continue to try to shove bad tech down the throats of the public they're going to increasingly push back. Yeah. Well, what about when you put a driver in the vehicle? Like I said, the projects that we're going to have here in Detroit are going to be manned. There's going to be someone there in case there's an issue. In that circumstance, then you can still get information while also having someone on board to make sure nothing really bad, no bricked systems happens or to take over. Would you advocate for a system like that? Oh, sure. Like, you know, if you have a safety driver in the car, you know, have at it. I, I'm actually for very few restrictions on the testing of cars uh, in the, if there's a human in it because they're far safer, actually, because I think there's so much attention paid on the safety envelope. So I think that's great. And I'm actually pro using this technology in the domains where you can um, guarantee what I say, quote unquote, good enough performance. And mm. so if you know, I spend a lot of time in Detroit. If there are areas of Detroit where I could um, get shuttled around between, you know, the suburbs and downtown, you know, and, and we have very few of these bricking events, great. Uh, but we've got to have data to know that that's happening. And unfortunately, Detroit has bad weather. And this is still, you know, we they, we saw an event where all the Waymo, not all, but a whole cluster of of Waymo vehicles got really, really confused by fog. You know, I mean, that was a foreseeable event. And Detroit has much worse weather than fog. So I think that we're still at this learning stage. Even it, it, we're still so much in the learning stage that there are other people who are proposing an in-car valet, even if, you know, for the Waymos and cruises in San Francisco, because the bricking events are so are happening so often that it's clear that there's a human needed, you know, so routinely. But until we have the data, it's going to be hard to say whether or not 
and how those valets should be interacting. Mm -hmm. Before I go to the phones, I do want to ask, speaking of, you mentioned uh, getting from one location to the other and uh, some of these systems. Another thing that we are uh, adopting here in Southeast Michigan is this system now that we're trying to build out for I-94 that I referred to a little bit earlier, a connected and automated vehicle travel lane. Uh, If you're familiar with those, can you tell us exactly how that works and what you think of that technology? Is that something that we could be trying to scale up and would help out with these situations? You mean, is this, so what, what specifically about this technology? Yeah, so specifically the idea would be that the vehicles that would be traveling on it would be connected to each other and there would be a specific lane so that vehicles they're putting fiber optic into the ground uh, so that uh, there's uh, better communication between the vehicles that would be traveling on that. Is, is, and what I'm basically getting at is, is there a system in place? Can we uh, create an infrastructure that would allow for more safely, uh, more safe use of autonomous vehicles? Yeah, so I, I do. I am aware of that uh, the, the connectivity effort going on in Detroit, and, and I'm all for connectivity to give you what I would call second derivative safety and convenience information. But for safety purposes, unless you can guarantee less than, you know, it's debatable, but I would say on the order of 10 milliseconds of lag, uh, you can't use any kind of external connected system to give you any safety information. And, you know, maybe if they get fiber optic and they can, guarantee that, you know, you never have more latency ever than 10 milliseconds in, um, you know, sending a a command or some information, maybe. But this isn't the first rodeo we've had. You know, there have been connected roads. There was one in Virginia, one in San Diego, and those experiments did not turn out very well indeed. I mean, that was a long time ago, like 20, 25 years ago. So I think connectivity can give you maybe an additional layer of safety information, but it can never, unless you get the really extraordinarily low latencies, it can never be relied upon to provide your first layer of threat safety. We're going to the phones right now, starting out with Theo in Town. Theo just dropped off the phone line, so that is unfortunate. But I do have a question that we did get from Michael on Twitter, who was referring to your use of data about driverless vehicles getting into more crashes than humans. Uh, Michael says, most have claimed the numbers show the opposite. Can you say more about how you're interpreting the data? Yeah, well, it's because I'm the only one who's using the data from the California Public Utilities Commission. So this is data. The self-driving car companies are required to report all their miles. And then they also are required to report all their crashes to the federal, um, into Chinitza. So I'm the first person that's done that analysis to, to look at the crash rate using two different government data sets. And, you know, I mean, they're they're wrong. I mean, you know, they're they're not correct when companies claim that their accidents are better than humans. They're not. The data is quite clear that the Waymo and Cruise, and these are the only two companies that have generated enough data to be able to even make that claim. So all the other companies are, you know, we're, we're still waiting for them to build more miles. But Cruise and Waymo crash four to eight times more often than humans do in these urban environments. Now, that's not saying anything about, you know, that they have not killed anyone. And I think that that's important to point out. 
that there have been no deaths um, by Cruz and Waymo, uh, but there have been a few serious injuries. But you can't look at the injury rates yet because there's still so few occurrences. And the miles that they generated, I mean, even though they want to say they've generated a million or more miles, in the big scope of global safety, that's still really low numbers. Right, right. Again, we're speaking with Missy Cummings, a professor and the director of George Mason University's Autonomy and Robotics Center. We want to speak with you as well. You can give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019 if you have any questions about the safety of autonomous vehicles. Again, the programs that are going to be happening in our area will contain manned individuals. They'll be operated by someone in their safety driver, uh, which we've gone over a little bit. But we are trying to learn more about this emerging technology. And as I have you on the line, Professor Cummings, um, do you have any idea, do we have any estimations on uh, how long or how far out we are from when we think that this technology will be at a better place where you might not necessarily have to have a safety driver in there for uh, the way that you think that we need right now? Well, you know, you can't take one broad sweep across all of this because it's very domain specific. So, You know, slow speed, last mile cargo delivery, something like we see, for example, Neuro. I think that has a lot of near-term opportunities for success because if the areas are well mapped, the vehicles are moving very slow, then the computation, you know, you really assist the vehicle in potentially raising what we call it situation awareness. So, I mean, I think that's near term, but if we're, if you're asking me, when can you use your phone, have an app, call the vehicle, have it come pick you up and drive you to Vegas while you sleep in the back, you know, not in my (laughs) professional lifetime. I mean, it's just not happening. Right. Right. So this is all connected to uncertainty. The more uncertainty there is in the environment, the worse these cars do. San Francisco is in fact the last place I would have ever done a, a vehicle pilot. I think, you know, Waymo's had a lot more success in Phoenix because the weather is so much more predictable. But even in a place like Austin, where Cruz is now rolling out, Austin is increasingly starting to have the very same vehicle retrieval events and all the other problems that San Francisco is having. And Austin is a much more forgiving city. So, you know, I, I think that these companies need to be careful if they don't really take the systems engineering approach and really start to manage and admit that they're having these second order effects, they really could end up doing a lot more damage um, with the public by not working with the public and appreciating they have these problems. And I think that there's some technical solutions that they're just ignoring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, I do appreciate you coming on with us, Professor Cummings. Before I let you go, though, the most important question that I have for you is, have you completed your hike of the Appalachian Trail? (laughs) Well, I just got back from New Hampshire where I was doing the presidential range. And, um, oh, boy, no, I haven't because there's some there's some hikes up there that I still they're very tough. And so um, I'm not as fast as I used to be, but I'm working on it. All right. All we can do is keep on working on it, just like autonomous vehicles. Professor Cummings, it was great having you on. And we're going to have to have you come back on, if only to learn about that trip. Anytime. Thank you for having me. 
when we continue on Detroit today, we're going to take your calls as well as invite a different perspective into the conversation. Economist Cliff Winston, who has his thoughts about the economic value of investing in autonomous vehicle technology. That happens next on Detroit Today as we continue. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, having a conversation about where we're at with autonomous vehicle technology right now and a large reason for the focus on autonomous vehicles or self-driving technology is the benefit advocates say it could have on our society. But as we invest more time and money into this emerging technology, some say that the benefits don't outweigh the cost. So where is the line? And what role should the government play in developing these technologies? To help us consider these questions and more, I'm joined by Clifford Winston, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution's Economic Studies Program, specializing in the analysis of industrial organization, regulation, and transportation. He's also the author of the book, Autonomous Vehicles, The Road to Economic Growth. Clifford, welcome to Detroit Today. Yes. (laughs) I'm happy to have you on because when I saw the name of the book, Autonomous Vehicles, The Road to Economic Growth, I with the question mark, I wanted to know, is it the road to economic growth? So so don't keep us waiting. Are autonomous vehicles the road to economic growth? And if you think so, let us know why. Okay, so what does transportation try to solve? It's the problem of the cost of distance. Okay. Society has been trying to solve this problem since human beings came out of the caves. That is, if you just live near your cave, all the modern advantages of an economy are lost. You work near your cave, right? You vacation near your cave. You can only buy things that are produced near your cave, right? People don't appreciate this, but it's the cost of distance that made you live near your cave. Transportation has continued to evolve to allow you to do other things. You can now commute, right? You can get goods from other locations. You can get goods from other countries, international trade, right? All sorts of things open up, and they continue to open up as the transportation system gets better, okay? All of that is what contributes to economic growth. All these things opening up greater productivity, more competition, more diverse products, so on and so forth, better matching of your skills with what the employer is looking for. Autonomous vehicles just represents another step in that continuum. Now, I agree with the previous caller that we're not getting this tomorrow, but this is technological advance, which is uncertain, both in terms of its direction and how long it's going to take. But assuming it does get to the final place, the benefits will be enormous because they're going to just be contributing to all the sources of economic growth that have helped our economy already. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you, and we're already getting some phone calls in that I'm going to go to to help tease out these points. But I think one of the questions that we have here from an economic perspective is where exactly is the line? Where is that investment coming from? And could the resources be invested elsewhere? So for you, what role do you think the government should play in terms of the development of these technologies? And how do we determine whether it's gone too far, if it should go someplace else? How would you balance those issues in terms of what the federal government should do? Okay, well, they're, they're, they're distinct responsibilities, so let's, let's not muddle them. This is coming from the private sector, 
okay, they're, they're making the investment, all right, and importantly, and this is <clears throat> extremely important, this is a global enterprise. This is not strictly the United States that's in this game, right? China, other countries are involved in investing and testing automobiles. So there is a race that's going on, which is a good thing. You know, competition is helpful in this regard. So they're responsible for the technology. Government is responsible for facilitating uh, adoption of these vehicles and facilitating their operating efficiency once they are adopted. So the first thing the government has to do is establish the testing protocol, which they attempted to do with AV START legislation in 2018, but it never got passed by Congress. So that would set out, you know, here's the protocol for testing at a national level, right, which is essentially, you know, what we have for non-autonomous cars. You can't just, you know, bring a non-autonomous car on the road and start driving it. You know, usually there's some sort of protocol for getting safety uh, clearance for the, for the vehicle uh, with NHTSA, the U.S. Department of Transportation. So the first thing is get the testing settled. The fact that they haven't been doing it is why we see things being done at the local and state level. So Detroit going out and testing these vehicles, it's doing it because the federal government has not provided any leadership and setting up how to do it. Now, at the same time, it hasn't said you can't do it, right? But this is where we need initial leadership is testing. Then they own the infrastructure. Autonomous vehicles are the private uh, firms and technology firms that are making it. They don't own the infrastructure. And so the government, since it owns it, is responsible for making sure when autonomous vehicles use the infrastructure, they're operating as efficiently as possible. So two red flags immediately come up. How is government doing that in the case of non-autonomous vehicles? Well, they're doing a terrible job. Autonomous vehicle, uh, non-autonomous vehicles suffer from considerable congestion, safety concerns, so on and so forth. Government has spent a ton of money on this, and it's planning to spend more, but it's made very little progress, right, in reducing congestion and, and improving safety. So that's another thing that they've got to do. And then ultimately, then, it's the technological issues of enabling the vehicles to communicate with each other and overall then even have communication with an entire network to move a mass of vehicles. So you can summarize that government has three responsibilities. Initial testing, improving public policy on highway infrastructure, and ultimately facilitating the full technological capabilities of autonomous vehicles. That's what they've got to do. Appreciate that perspective. I also appreciate the calls. That's why we're going to go to the phones right now, starting with Peter in Detroit. Go ahead. You are on Detroit today. Hi there. Um, I'll say this. The safety aspect is what concerns me because it's not safe with human drivers out on the roads at, at all times and bad weather and uh, uh, traffic congestion. This is the saying that we're going to put a safety driver in the car. A safety driver is going to be a passenger mm. and passengers are never as focused as a driver. That's why they have these systems in cars that will tell the driver, hey, pay attention if they're looking other ways. The, the, the safety driver is going to be doing just that. Yeah. But here's the thing that really concerns me uh, uh, is that I was driving once down Livernois. Livernois is a boulevarded street. As I was driving, at the speed limit, mind you, 
I see a guy coming across the street reading his phone, and he's on the boulevard, and, he's, and I look at, I'm watching him, and I think, you know what? This fool's probably going to step out into the street. He's not even looking at where he's going. So I started slowing down. He stepped out into the street without looking up, and sure enough, there he is, and I, and I slowed to a stop. The driverless car would have waited for him to step out into the street and probably killed him. It, doesn't, it will not have the intuitive enough to be able to look across the entire street and go, hey, there's somebody crossing the street. I should be on the lookout for that. Mm. They're not, we're not ready for that anywhere close. Yeah. They can't handle traffic congestion. They're certainly not going to handle that situation. Well, Peter, in Detroit, I really appreciate your perspective. I mean, I know that's one of the things that we see with some of these, again, not to conflate the two, right? You have fully self-driving vehicles or autonomous vehicles. Then you have some of the manned systems that people try to get around that aren't made for that specifically. I think some people might push back and say that in your scenario, Peter, someone would, the autonomous vehicle would have stopped, but it still does bring up the concern that we do have these accidents. We do have folks like Peter in Detroit who have these concerns. So where does that fit into your calculation, Cliff, in terms of the public feeling like, hey, as we're rolling these things out, if they're not feeling safe and secure in the systems, doesn't that undermine our ability to get them utilized and get the public relying on them in terms of from an economic perspective? Sure. But let, let, me, let me offer a caution both sure. to you and your listeners. It's essential when you're talking about a new technology to take a long-run view. Consider aircraft. Can you imagine what people will be thinking now if we never had airlines or aircraft they think, are you serious? I'm going to go up in that thing in the sky, right? They'd be terrified. And, you know, look at the safety record of air, airlines when they first began. It was pretty scary. I mean, there were a lot of crashes. And it took a long time for aircraft to become safer, for us to develop new technologies, jets, for us to have improvements in air traffic control, and hopefully we'll soon be adopting satellite air traffic control. These things take time. And there were naysayers from the very beginning about, about aircraft, saying it would never work. So basically, we're just going through what we do with aircraft. Yes, there's got to be testing. The technology's got to improve. There are going to be critics. But there's one very important thing which people also need to appreciate. This is the private sector's money. They're investing hundreds of billions of dollars in this. And they stand to lose quite a bit if this thing fails. That is, if they cannot really develop a safe autonomous vehicles. Okay. And this would be a first. There's really never been a new technology where it's been an industry-wide effort to develop it that has completely failed. There have been certain firms that have been failed, and they've been eclipsed by other firms, right? You know, Betamax was, was eclipsed by VCR. That happens all the time. But this is a global effort. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. They will succeed. It will take decades. The transition will be difficult, just as it was with aircraft. Yes, there'll be accidents. There'll be concerns. There'll be mistakes. But ultimately, the private sector is responsible for this. They know when they have an accident, it sets back public acceptance. At the same time, this is where the government can come in and say, look, here are the standards that we want you to make, right? And we want you to show us progress and work collectively with government and public about doing that. So I think it's, it's a bad idea to take a short-run view of this. 
because this is going to be something that's going to take a while, and there are going to be bumps along the road, that's for sure. But it's also important to take the long-run view and realize who is behind this. It's the global private sector making huge investments, and they better succeed, or there's going to be actually pretty traumatic macroeconomic effects if they fail because they put in so much money. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Program director is Adam Fox. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. The Detroit Today podcast is edited by David Lyons. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to share it with your friends. 